Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk technology, computing, the internet, uh, games, most importantly. Um, very excited to be with you on the show tonight. Um, I'm Warren Davies, and I'm also joined by Dan Morganti. Dan, how are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks for asking, Warren. Have you uh, had a good week in technology? Has it been serving you? Uh, yeah, I've been looking for a new job, so I've been going through a lot of uh online portals for job applications and the like. So just seeing what's out there in the world of uh, applying for jobs through online portals, which has been uh, a roller coaster, ups and downs. It is it is certainly challenging. I always struggle with um, uh, not only the content, but um, what kind of photo should should you put in there? What, what kind of photo angle did you go for in some of these? Oh, I try to avoid putting my photo up there as much as possible. I try to give them as little information to, dis- to dislike me as possible. Um, <laughs> and I've got to say, nothing boils my blood more than writing out your entire resume, uh, sending it off, and then they ask you in the form, all the details that are on your resume anyway. What, uh, what's, the, what's the point? Why are you doubling up on, on this? Are they trying to catch me out in a lie or something? I mean, my <laughs> resume is filled with them, but <laughs> I don't want them knowing that. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is, it's a frustrating process. Mm. Um, also joined on the show tonight by Paul Callahan. Paul, how are you? I'm, I'm good, Warren. It's been a while since we've been on yeah. a show together. It's true. Uh, it must be uh, a few months um, at least, but um, excited to have you here. Have you have you had a good week in technology? Has it been uh, faring for you? Yeah, I, I'm sort of in a slightly different boat. In that I've sort of recently started a new job, so it's been like Teams, lots of Teams <laughs> meetings, and trying to work out how to how to collaborate and like figuring out how do you do a remote strategy day as well mm. like real you know sort of like big challenges when you can't just be in a room with people so yeah like I've, I've been trying to get up to speed and learn all of those things uh along the way and seeing just seeing what's out there like doing audits on technology mm. the most exciting thing is just signing up for you know test try trial bits on pieces of software just to see whether or not it's going to do what you want yeah for sure i think um Miro gets a good rap as like a, a, a like a whiteboarding tool and right. we've been using concept board which is is not too bad as well it's kind of fun it's it's very weird to be having um, having that stuff open and also being having like lots of video chats going at the same time as well. Very right. unusual. Hmm. Uh, it's going to be a fun show tonight. Uh, we've got uh, a few things that we're interested in having a chat about. Um, Dr. Verity Trott from Monash University uh, has been keeping a track of um, what we've been thinking and feeling uh, around COVID-19 and um, restrictions specifically in uh, Greater Melbourne and, and Mitchell Shire as well, but uh, I guess also more broadly um, uh, Australians and, and their response to, to the pandemic. So uh, we'll be having a chat with uh, Dr. Trott um, in a few minutes uh, on the show. And we'll also be having a look at uh, most recent games uh, that are have caught our eye and that we're enjoying playing. Um, so uh, I think Paul and Dan are going to uh, take us through that uh, a little bit later in the show, which should be great. Um, but before then, there is uh, a bit of news going on and, uh, and things that we want to um, bring up. Um, we have been keeping track of the uh, C case uh, against Google um, that is, um, I think, uh, commencing uh, this week, uh, which is 
which is great. Um, it is a, uh, I think, a big, um, well, it's a big time for a lot of these platforms um, and uh, some of their, uh, I, I guess, what has been termed anti-competitive and uh, sort of uh, monopolistic behaviour um, uh, in recent years. Um, the the issue that ACCC has um, against Google uh, dates back to uh, 2008 and their purchase of a, uh, a company called DoubleClick, which is uh, an advertising company that um, not unlike a lot of the companies that Google has purchased in, in recent years, um, uh, specializes in tracking our behavior and, and our activity uh, across the internet um, and in order to, to serve ads to them. So it's interesting, uh, around uh, 100, 120, 130 billion of the 160 odd billion that uh, Google uh, made in revenue uh, last year came from advertising and, and through, um, I guess, being able to track uh, users um, like uh, through things like um, DoubleClick. Um, the ACCC's inquiry uh, or digital platforms inquiry found um, 80% of Australians recently did not want their web browsing activity to be combined with their personal information, which is the, the sort of very model that um, that uh, DoubleClick has, has brought to Google um, over the past decade or so. Um, yeah, ACCC is seeking uh, millions of dollars in damages from Google, which uh, I guess depends on the number in front of uh, millions as to whether or not it will actually make an impact or not. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, uh, declarations from well, Google and other platforms um, uh, like Google uh, can and can't do in terms of getting users to consent. Um, to changes and, and updates to their, their sort of um, terms of use and, and so forth as well. They're seeking some clarity, uh, clarity around that. But, yeah, what are your thoughts? What, what do you think, guys, about um, should Australia be um, putting its foot down and, and do, do you have much confidence that um, they can sort of steer some changes for these these large global players? Um, I mean, I, oh, sorry, go ahead, Paul. <laughs> um, the, the perils of, of Skype radio. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the it's interesting, you know, I sort of you think back of all the conversations we've had about this on the show over the years and like, you know, slowly this feels like the inevitable end point. In fact, but it probably isn't even an end point, right? It's probably like a, an opening salvo and conversations that we'll continue to have for years and years and years on the show. Um, I think I think it's really it's really difficult to tell because sometimes these are just like governments sending up you know, testing the water or sending out signals to see what what will happen. Um, I think it's 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 interesting how it probably speaks to how governments are more broadly thinking about the you know the the kind of the the global soft power or like hard power of these companies and like broader you know fears around technology as well. Like it's not just this single ACCC thing. It's it's part of a much larger anxiety, I think, which is sort of floating around. Uh, for governments and and you know I think the Australian government is such a a complex if, shall we say relationship to technology generally um, so I'll be really curious about how what the next steps are and, and probably what the, the you know the second or third iteration of this process looks like as well. Hmm. Um, yeah, I can't articulate it better than that actually. So that's um, yeah, I just hope yeah, I I just want. Uh, if they're operating in Australia, I just want, you know, appropriate uh, compensation for Australian people for the any revenue that they take out through advertising or things like that. Mm. Mm. It's um, 
I think to your to your point there, Paul, about um, uh, is it just a, another kind of speed bump on the the superhighway of of kind of profits <laughs> and and um, and growth for these these companies? Um, there's a, a an interesting piece about um, how uh, what they're calling the you know the four 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 horsemen of, of big technology: um, uh, Apple, Google, uh, Amazon, and uh, or another one in here somewhere, but. Um, uh, not too long ago, um, because those uh, the four brands are going up to um, front the uh, anti-competition uh, congressional committee um, uh, later this week um, in the states. Um, yeah, so uh, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Google um, will be presenting, and they're drawing parallels to when um, back in 1994 the um, seven large tobacco companies were called before the same committee, um, and they insisted. Nicotine's not addictive, and um, you know we're we're doing things for the right reasons, and you know we're paying our taxes and and so forth. And they were seemingly untouchable uh, still in the early '90s, and everything unraveled for them quite quickly um, after that. So, um, yeah, it could just be that uh, a few um, a few governments and a few countries putting their foot down and and saying we demand these changes. There, there has been some good um, victories in uh, the EU on things such as the right to be forgotten and various other parts. So. Yeah, even if it's not a, a big um, uh, sort of watershed moment, the, the kind of slow dismantling of the position of, of uh, I guess, these four um, um, is possible, you know. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. But, um, yeah, in uh, other news, you, you're talking about um, folding, um, folding at home, Paul. Yeah, like, so that this is something that uh, I saw just today, which is quite exciting. So, um well, perhaps it's generally exciting for me because I have too many Raspberry Pis rattling around the house. Um, <laughs> but Folding at Home uh, and Renzero at Home uh, announced that uh, they're going to be releasing uh, their software so it can run on uh, ARM64 hardware. Uh, so that's you know Qualcomm Snapdragon and Samsung, um, and most of the the sort of the hardware in in mobile phones as well. Um, and obviously Raspberry Pis as well. I think from the three on, they're 64-bit and they can run versions of, of ARM64. So that potentially opens up to like millions and millions of more devices. Um, and for those of you who don't know, Folding at Home is basically a distributed computing project, which has largely been used to sort of solve um, complex fo uh, protein folding equations um, and is currently uh, looking uh, at solutions for COVID-19 vaccines. So running a whole bunch of simulations um, that are massively distributed. Um, so it's uh, a collaboration between Neocortex and ARM and Folding at Home. I tried to find the actual download. I'm not sure it's actually released yet, but it's it's quite exciting for, for those of you like me who do have too many Raspberry Pis clogging up the house. Maybe we can put it put them to work to, to you know to get out of this this global pandemic that we find ourselves in at the moment. How much kind of spare power, computing power, do they generally have? Um, you know, Raspberry Pi. Uh, I've got one of the Raspberry Pi fours that I'm running. So it's got like, it's got like I think four gig of memory, um, and I'm just running like. Um, it's just getting dorky on a tech show. I almost said, <laughs> but that's fine. Um, like a, a Next Cloud server, which is um, a sort of a Dropbox replacement. I have an RSS reader. Mm running on that, um, looking at running a thing called Bitwarden, which is like a password manager. So you could like running these five or six like separate little applications and it's not breaking a sweat. So I think if I was to put something mm. like this on it, it would be fine. And you know, they're really low power. Um, and and yeah, so I think it's potentially it's potentially a big a big win for them. 
Mm. I Speaking only ever of... really use them to make emulators, so it's good, it's good to see <laughs> them, hear about the other applications. <laughs> Speaking of big wins as well, uh, XPRIZE caught your eye, I understand, Paul. Yeah, so staying with sort of a COVID theme, um, XPRIZE uh, have just launched uh, again today a $5 million competition um, to hopefully incentivize and speed up uh, COVID-19 testing. Um, obviously, for those of you who have been following it, like COVID testing is kind of taking like days at the moment for people to get the results. Um, there's been some trials where they've sort of reduced that, um, but uh, XPRIZE is really looking at getting it down to like a 20 to 25 minute sort of response time. Um, and so obviously that you know, increases the or reduces the amount of time for contract tracing and things like that. So uh, how they've described it is what we really want is an instant magical device that gives you the results in 15 or 20 minutes. Um, short of that, they would also accept tests with next morning results um, where you can get it the next day. Um, and their argument is obviously that that could prevent someone going to work and spreading the disease. Um, they're also looking at ways that they can do this for cheap. So like with a lot of the XPRIZE uh, funds, it's basically incentivization of that. It's, it's like a masculine hackathon, basically an experimentation uh, with a big chunk of change uh, at the other end to make that happen. Uh, I think that's good. I think, um, yeah, especially in light of the fact that uh, they're suggesting people who are getting tested aren't necessarily sort of isolating and um, doing the right thing. I think anything that can kind of limit uh, our exposure to that is uh, is good. Um, if that fails, we may have to get some of these new SpaceX suits. Um, Dan, would you wear one of these? Uh, uh, do you think? Yeah, so SpaceX has uh, debuted the look of their new Dragon suits. Um, they look quite futuristic uh, and they've gone against the grain uh, 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 with other um, international flight, uh, sorry, space flight companies and they're actually developing them in-house it's a very spacex or tesla way to do things is to create everything themselves um and the spacex's chris trigg who's the um space suits and crew equipment manager says it's now a like a fully integrated suit to be paired with the um, chair system so the suit uh, whatever they're sitting in there um, system provides a full readout and of course touch screen touch screen display because it couldn't be uh Elon Musk without a touchscreen display. Nice. I do like the. Um, they, they seem to be a lot more um, uh, nimble. Um, if I'm just kind of imagining the the usage, they've got these great kind of like um, gauntlets for like the neck and armpits and and so forth. They don't look quite as stiff as as past yeah. ones. Every every now and then something comes up that looks sci-fi that's actually applicable to real life, and this is like ed edging on like 1980s sci-fi looking. Um, but yeah, it, it looks quite cool. It's very nice. I do um, love that, um, like one of the members of the team, Maria Sundin, um, has the title lead space specialist. Like that feels like quite a good thing to have on your business card. Yeah. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. We do want to call out that uh, Mobile Master, which is a great uh, free mobile phone recycling program uh, across Australia, uh, is uh, coming up again. Um, they're partnering with Landcare Australia to provide um, some added incentives to to recycle. So um, I guess there's a, a few few good things here. We need to get those rare metals back into use. Um, it's not cheap and easy to get them, so um, we, we certainly can't waste them. But also the idea that um, we can prevent these going into landfill and leaching out uh, into our, our soils and, and waterways uh, is a good thing. Um, 
they're trying to recycle around 20,000 mobile phones uh, in August. So there's um, a few things you can do. You can drop them off at your uh, nearest participating mobile master mobile phone retailer if you're out doing uh, key things. But uh, in Victoria, but obviously around Australia, you've got a bit more mobility. Um, you can actually get a recycling satchel from Australia Post as well, and you can post them in. Um, so, yeah, we'll tweet out a link to that uh, as well. But, uh, yeah, if you've got your own old phone sitting around, they're not being used, um, you should certainly recycle them. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R with Paul, Dan and Warren. One of the places that um, you get a pretty good read on how um, uh, the community is uh, feeling and doing uh, around big big kind of uh, um, moments like uh, COVID-19 is through looking at how we um, uh, engage online, what we're talking about, what we're saying, how we're commenting, uh, et cetera. And uh, one person who's been uh, having a bit of a dig into that space is Dr. Verity Trott, who is a lecturer at Monash University School of Media, Film and Journalism. And Verity has been doing a lot of stuff in uh, digital media research, um, especially around uh, feminist connective actions, Indigenous women's use of social media and everyday political talk um, in in third spaces. So, uh, Dr. Trott, thanks for joining us on the show tonight. Hey, how's everyone going? I think I'm okay, but you could probably tell us, I would imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Seems pretty positive then. Pretty positive. Um, so this is this is really interesting research. Um, uh, you, you've been doing what's called uh, sentiment analysis of uh, the types of conversations that we've been having uh, across a variety of platforms. But h- how do you explain it um, to people who haven't heard of this kind of thing, um, sort of at the proverbial sort of barbecue? What, what is it that you do? So sentiment analysis is basically a computational text analysis. So I use a software and it provides a score that's for positive, neutral, and negative sentiment within, for me at least, social media posts for the work that I do. So there's this belief that human expressions contain, you know, mixed sentiment or mixed emotions. So we can have one sentence that is both positive, negative, and also has neutral terms in it. So I use a software called um, Veda Sentiment, which is meant to be the best for social media because it can detect things like emojis um, or, you know, I guess, social media slang or our common texting patterns quite effectively to be able to understand generally are we saying happy things or are we being positive or negative, but it does struggle to understand things like context. So you always need a human to give a bit of oversight to understand where, I guess, that sentiment is coming from. Mm. My understanding is uh, Australians can be uh, quite difficult to interpret sometimes as well. We've got various levels of kind of um, nuance. Is is that true? <laughs> That's true. Of course, we like to have the Australians saying like, yeah, nah, <laughs> <laughs> saying the opposite of what we mean. <laughs> Interesting. And, and, and what was the, um, did you have a sort of a pretext in mind for having a look at um, COVID and, and sort of what we're experiencing at the moment? Or did you just want to have a bit of a look and, and see what was what was going on? So it's actually part of a much larger project that I'm part of a team. Um, I'm working on a team, a much bigger team, actually, looking at how users go online to seek out information and share information and how they help each other understand 
um, what's happening in the world around them. And we started this project back in January. So I was in the process of collecting data when coronavirus became a thing. So I found myself in this uh, particular position where I could actually see people's concerns and anxieties and get an understanding or overview of, you know, what kind of things are they looking for? Where do they need help? And what is the general feeling and sentiment um, in our community? And, and what kinds of uh, what kinds of things were coming up? Was it easy to sort of um, uncover themes or, or see a, a clear line into into what we we're thinking? Yeah. So at the start, uh, I guess most of our conversations were dominated by humorous posts about toilet paper, <laughs> stockpiling, um, also like cancelled flights, and speculation about what the novel coronavirus was. Um, but then things shifted. And people began thinking about, you know, what kind of Centrelink options were there? How do they access superannuation? What do the restrictions mean? And there was some negative sentiment there around hospitals, um, police and all that kind of stuff. Um, but generally, people were actually quite positive in how they were talking about these things. So, you know, maybe it's Australian-specific, but people like to keep it lighthearted. They like to make jokes, you know, as a way of coping with stress. And people were very supportive, showing a lot of solidarity and trying to help each other out, tell them how to how do you even like apply for something like JobKeeper. So that was really great to see. Um, do you do you see that there's like hotspots of um, like communities that kind of sway the data? Like you like come across the same say Facebook group that maybe denies COVID or something like that. Do you do you see like that kind of thing happening? That's a really interesting question because the platforms that I looked at were all, and the groups and the pages that I've looked at have all been public, um, mainly because of ethical reasons and access. And what we can see is when people make a post, people do debate about, you know, is that true? Is that authentic? How do we understand that? Does it come from a reputable source? But what we know from other research is that, you know, fake news and conspiracy theories, they run rampant in private avenues. So people share, you know, some of the fake press releases about what our restrictions are going to be um, at early on, if you remember those. That was all shared through platforms like WhatsApp and WeChat as opposed to people posting that publicly where it can be critiqued, you know, by the general community. So, yeah, I didn't actually see too much fake news on that public um, area of it. But it is, we should be mindful of looking and being critical about the content we're being shared privately on private messages and WhatsApp. Um. And I'm really interested in that kind of emergence of uh, of that fake or, or not true uh, content. Are you finding differences between the sort of the volume of that in, in this lockdown compared to the first time we went into lockdown? Um, I guess it's been similar levels. Earlier on, there are generally about different things. So early on, the conspiracies that I saw publicly were about what the virus actually is, whereas now a lot of the conspiracies are about how to wear masks properly, you know, are masks actually required? Um, the most recent data that I have is from early July when Victoria Melbourne went into the second round of Stage 3 restrictions, but I imagine if I was to do the data analysis in the past couple of days, Karen would be the number one topic. <laughs> Poor and, even, 
Yeah, for Karen. Um, and even at this early stage, like, do you, is there like a noticeable difference, like in sentiment between between that initial lockdown and 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 where we're at now? Generally, it's probably stayed pretty even, but I have seen more extreme anxiety being posted. People are expressing personal stories of difficulties and challenges, and they're concerned that they're not going to make it through the second lockdown. But then. In response to that, there has been a lot more sharing of mental health resources. Like People have really come together to provide support and solidarity, and then they've been posting appreciative pictures of their landscapes, like their neighbourhood or their pandemic pets. So we've, I think we've seen a slight intensity in both negative and positive from people being more stressed, more concerned, but then people going that extra, putting in that extra effort to try and cheer everyone up. Mm, that'd be nice to think. Um, I'm interested if um, you, you hear a little bit of talk about how uh, um, these kind of social graphs skew towards uh, sensational content. So, you know, extreme extreme negatives or, or extreme or, or polarising content. Um, does, does sentiment analysis account for that in, in your work or how do you balance out um, these things are popular because it's either polarising or... Um, it's stirring people up in a in a particular way, um, or, is, or is that not not too significant? Uh, it's interesting to consider. Anything that stirs people up will be generally negative. I mean, for example, there's two topics I could say that have quite different sentiment. One was security guards. So there is positive sentiment around security guards simply because how people talk about it is yeah, in a funny way. People are making jokes about the security guards breaching restrictions. And everyone's kind of collectively come together to make jokes about that. But then on the other side of it, we have the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, as a really divisive topic. And there's a lot of negativity around that coming from how people talk about the protests. And so, you know, it's not necessarily that people are hateful or disagree with the protests, but people are negative on all sides. They're negative about the arrests, about protests, you know, attempts to shut down the protests, but they're also expressing personal um, struggle in trying to resolve whether or not they should participate or if they want to risk their health. So we see those really complex topics that are quite divisive being represented with negative sentiment generally. Yeah, because I think in the con in the context of something like Black Lives Matter, someone might say something like, "I'm I'm really not happy," or "I'm not happy about this," or "I'm not satisfied," which might appear as a negative. But in the context of a protest, it's potentially quite positive as well. It's uh, something to, I guess, consider. I guess. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, is there? I'm curious to know because um, these these seem like really um, powerful and, and interesting ways to interrogate our experience. Do, um, are there other things that we need to consider to, to sort of balance these? Um, is there, because I think I think things such as news comments and, and sort of public commentary is available to, to analyse these things. And uh, we've had many conversations in the past, I guess, not just on this show, but um, elsewhere about um, uh, skews and potential bias in, in the media. Um, if you were sort of doing a project around um, uh, I, I need to understand how Melbourne is feeling right now, would you go to other sources or is um, working with some of the sort of more popular social media channels uh, a, a pretty good um, take on where we're at right now? Where does it kind of sit in the context of do we get an accurate picture or do we need other sources as well? Uh, 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I would definitely want to do outreach to some more traditional um, companies that have connections to communities that would not be as engaged online. So when I've collected data, it's from all around Australia, and I've looked at both regional and metropolitan areas. And the regional areas, for example, like Bendigo and Ballarat, I mean, even in Tasmania, like Launceston, generally there's actually a decrease in online engagement in their online spaces when restrictions came into play, which was strange because you think they'd be being pushed online more. But then those demographics that are out there just might not, be thinking about going online to connect or they might be relying on their offline, more traditional, immediate networks or they might simply be more alone and isolated. So I think it's really important to be able to put some like traditional outreach where you say get out there into physical spaces and monitor how other people are doing that might be falling off the radar, um, yeah, simply because they're not engaging online. It's it's yeah like we all we all understand that the like this kind of stuff sways our uh, our perception of the world and um, yeah how the media does that to us um, but yeah it's been a, a fascinating talk thanks so much for coming on the show Dr Trot no worries thanks for having me Triple R we've come to uh, my favorite part of being on bite into it uh video games we're talking about video games and video game news um i've just come across uh, an article about uh, a teacher in the u.s who uh, has raised sixteen thousand dollars on twitch uh to wipe uh child school lunch debt which is a you know, really uplifting story and just goes to show uh the kind of um, positive things that gaming can, positive effects gaming can have in our lives, especially uh, on a platform like Twitch, which is often uh, a bit not so positive, I guess. Yeah. I hope that wasn't one child's debt, was it? That uh, was a lot of children's debt. Yeah, that's like, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around as an Australian, considering that we don't have uh, such a huge school lunch program. But yeah, uh, kids get into debt at school for lunches that they wow. cannot pay for, which is uh, not a great way to start life and does the opposite of um, supporting, you know, the youth that they're trying to educate. But, yeah, uh, uplifting story for um, for the quagmire of terribleness that is uh, school lunch debt, you know, a teacher really taking the extra step for his students. Hmm. Um, some other gaming news uh, where we're on the topic, probably less wholesome, uh, but still kind of wholesome, I guess. Uh, Pokemon Go, um, those of you who remember when we could leave the house, Pokemon Go uh, on your mobile phone. Uh, apparently, Pokemon Go players spent nearly 20 million US dollars uh, this week, this past weekend uh, as well. Whoa. Yep. Uh, so on Saturday, so they basically they, they ran a, a Pokemon Go festival um, over the weekend, um, and on the Saturday, which was the first day of the event, um, players spent 8.9 million, um, which was the the highest single day total since the game came out. So even at its peak, uh, however long ago that was, um, they're making more money from that. Um, but as as some people have pointed out, uh, most of that came from the fact that you had to spend $15 to get into the event. <laughs> 
um, so so it's still it's still a lot of money and and uh, apparently according to games industry uh, despite Pokemon Go's age, it's it's already made five hundred and forty million dollars this year. You know, for a game about being outside and walking around um, that's now getting on, uh, it's still raking it in, still pulling in the dollars. And it's it's unbelievable. Do you guys have any uh, uh, special Pokemon in your pockets? I haven't played Pokemon Go uh, since it was since I lived in London, which is now like three or four years ago. Yeah. Um, so I think it was caught up in that flurry, and like even my wife played it, who never who never plays video games. Um, she was we were playing it together, and then I think everyone that I knew just stopped. Yeah, but it's it's so it's it's incredible to see that there's still that many people or it can generate that mu- that many profits when really they I don't, I can't see how how many people are playing it uh, these days because. No one I know seems to be playing it, unless they're all doing it in private in their in their living rooms these days, because uh, that's all you can do. Just we haven't been telling you, Dan. We've been having these big Pokemon Go parties. <laughs> I know you're joking, but I am very hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I, I, I was swept up in the the initial craze too, and you know we we would stop at particular parks and go chasing after a particular you know special Pokemon or what have you, or find uh, some kind of crazy gym or whatever it was called, but. Um, it, you could tell it never really died off. You would still be walking around the city and you would see people in groups in parks sort of, you know, head down over their phone or their laps kind of chasing something and just kind of, you know, flicking into oblivion. So, yeah, I, I kind of – I'm not surprised that um, they've made quite a bit of uh, coin out of it. But I am surprised now uh, um, considering we're a little bit less mobile mm. now. Um, how do you guys sit with uh, console power? Is it something that uh, you look for when you're considering buying a new console? <laughs> that that feels like a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> look, I'm an equal opportunity console player, so uh, whichever console you choose, I I don't uh, judge. I play them all, so um, it, it's never really been a big issue for me. Uh, just as long as it looks better than the previous generation, um, I'm always quite happy to uh, play games. I, I always find um, exclusive games a bit ridiculous. That's more a major selling point for me when uh, buying a console, what what games are exclusive to that console rather than the, the hardware because even if one does perform better than the other, they're still pretty consistent. It's interesting to think about that, given that we're on the cusp of what will be the next generation um, of console hardware. Um, and I was reading, so that's obviously new, new Xbox, and we're kind of Nintendo are already underway with that with the Switch, even though it's it's underpowered. Um, but I, I was sort of reading this really interesting article in Endgadget, which sort of stepped away from those questions of power um, and focused on what looks like the long-term strategies from the, the three big console manufacturers. Mm. And the way that they, they were talking about it is like obviously Sony are sort of doubling down on those exclusive games, uh, games you can only get on, on the PlayStation and really on their first and you know kind of second-party developers and making that the clear selling point. Nintendo's just off doing what Nintendo always does, which is very much its own thing. Yeah, they, um, they move to the beat of their own Donkey Konga bongo controller. Yeah, I remember when I when I when I was teaching um, a long time ago, and you know the students would be complaining about what Nintendo were up to, and he would just kind of go, "Nintendo could like not spend any money 
like and basically like survive for a hundred years. Yeah. They've been around for hundreds of years. They'll be around for hundreds of years. They're not going anywhere. So like they can just do whatever they like anyway. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's that you know you see that in the games that they're making. But what I found most interesting was the analysis of what Microsoft are up to, mm. and sort of trying to situate the Xbox as is effectively like a box that is a subscription service for games. So really moving away from thinking about exclusives. And all, I think perhaps not in this generation, but definitely the next generation, getting out of that hardware race entirely and just kind of going, you can give us 10 bucks a month and you can play hundreds of games from the library. Um, and really kind of moving in that um Netflix for games model, which, you know, games industry sort of been like chattering about for a little while, but it feels like that's the the stake that they're going to claim, yeah. you know, for, for this next generation. You can already see it because they've already got their Xbox Live Pass where you can download and uh, there's cloud streaming and there's cl- cl- cross-platform streaming. So if you've got uh, any game on Xbox, you can play it on uh, Microsoft Windows as well on there uh, with their Xbox Live Games Pass, which I think I think that's the name I'm getting. I'm getting it right, but yeah, that's uh, they're already moving in that direction in this generation. So, uh, makes sense that they would capitalize on that uh, next generation as well. Yeah, and it really feels like a different set of fights, as as you were saying, Dan. Like that, that kind of push towards better graphics or better sound or faster processes. That real hardware race. Like it doesn't feel like those big manufacturers now are engaging in the same fight. Mm. You know, someone's gone off on subscriptions, someone's gone off on, like, specific quality of games, and Nintendo are going off on their playability and first-person ones. So it's a really interesting time. It feels much more interesting the start of this generation and probably the start of the last generation did, where everyone was kind of trying to trade on horsepower. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, like, uh, with PS as well, they seem to really focus on their their first-party um, developers, so the the companies that they own, but um, somewhat independent of uh, Sony, um, like the uh, God of War, which I think came out in two thousand and eighteen, uh, but the remake of that and uh, uh, Naughty Dog with um, uh, the Last of Us Two, which came out recently, and um, uh, yeah, and Ghost of Sh- Tsushima, which is uh, I don't think it's uh, a Sony company, but it is. Uh, I haven't played it yet, but that's one that I'm looking forward to. And what I've heard is like the perfect swan song for the PS4 generation. So, um, is there any games that uh, you've been, you guys have been playing? I have been playing. Um, I, I I don't mind playability. I'm sort of a Nintendo from way back, um, going back to like you know. I've, I think I've got a Nintendo Entertainment System out there that I still fire up from time to time. OG. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's hard. It's hard playing Duck Hunt because you need those sort of cathode ray uh, yeah. um, TVs, but you can get a converter and you know, etc. But um, yeah, no, I don't mind playability, so I'm not so not so crazy about the sort of raw raw computing power of the, the bigger consoles. But yeah, I I enjoy. Uh, I've enjoyed some of the local games. I've, I've um, started playing last week uh, Marvel Ultimate Alliance Three um, because my partner's a, a big uh, Marvel fan, and um, hilariously because um they thought uh it was going to be a two-player game which obviously you can't do on on switch um i've been playing it myself going (laughs) okay well i've spent good money on this so damn it i'm gonna have a go and um 
I do actually like the idea of having the four characters that you run around. They've got not just people from um, uh, specific um, comic series, but um, the whole kind of Marvel universe. So you unlock the um, various characters throughout the game. The one thing that does drive me a little bit bonkers is there's so much video story narrative in it. Um, So I'm constantly having to skip ahead, skip ahead. Um, There's some strange stuff there, but um, yeah, I really enjoy have always enjoyed from like Double Dragon 2 where you'd have like a few characters going on through to um, this kind of um, this kind of gameplay. It's great. Um, so, yeah, uh, I enjoy it. I'm a little bit of a thrasher. Um, I don't get deep into the complex kind of um, sequences and stuff of um, like combat moves and what have you. So I, I just kind of like punch the buttons as hard as I can, but I seem to go okay. I, I think that's great video game design though to have a game that, that does have complex systems but doesn't punish people if they don't want to dive deep into the all the mechanics that are available if if you can play uh as simply as you want or you know um the inverse is going as hard as you want into min maxing your characters and whatnot um that's like if if a skilled player can get as much enjoyment as a as a newbie um that that's just good video game design i I think Mm. yeah i I love it i'd recommend it Mm. Yeah, sweet. Um, what do you, what are you playing at the moment, Paul? Uh, I, I'm not. I, I just finished playing Spider Man, but I don't really feel the need to talk about it because I was quite disappointed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I like I weirdly have been finding myself um, thinking a lot about um, Kentucky Route Zero. Yeah. Which which I replayed um, when the the final act came out. I think just at the start of lockdown. Um, or just into it, and I don't. I don't know if it's my mood. I don't know if it's like the fact we're in lockdown again. But I find myself thinking about moments from that game. Um, like there, there is there is a particular moment, and and I think in Act Three in the bar, which is one of my one of my favorite moments in any video game ever. Um, the in the lower depths bar um, with the band, uh, for those of you who have played it and know what I'm talking about, it's incredible. But I think, like, I've played through the first couple of acts three or four times, and so I've only really played the final act once, and the final act is so different in a lot of ways to um, to the rest of the game. And for those of you who don't know, like, it, it was released episodically over a series of acts and interludes over a period of, I think, about eight years. And so it's people a, have this long, complex relationship. It's an, adventure, the, it's an adventure game with a very uh, unique aesthetic as well, like a kind of monochrome... Uh, yeah. single color aesthetic right and yeah and and it's about the the death of the american dream um and about late stage capitalism and about people and music and and making a living and surviving um it's it's incredible it's so it's so wonderful and and the end of the whole experience like you know you could play it probably a day or an afternoon but is is incredible and touching and yeah, and so like I said, I don't know if it's just where my mood's at or where my head's at, but I have a real urge to go in and play it all through it's, it's um, se- again. It seems like a game that would be perfect for the lockdown, considering yeah. uh, you might you may be able to think a little bit more uh, and you're a little bit more isolated. So to, to be able to uh, consider that, and it has kind of like, it's got that kind of nostalgic feel because it's, it's got like a 1950s aesthetic as well. Like it's set in, uh, yeah, like a backroads country uh, Kentucky in uh, yeah a, a, an indescribable time, but certainly in the past. Um, 
yeah, so I could see why it would have an emotional impact on you seeing as it's like kind of that emotionally driven narrative. But also the I found that the writing in that was very vague or vague enough that you could also um, apply your own life experiences onto what was happening in the in the game, um, which also another more uh, narrative design than uh, mechanical design, but uh, just good video game design, really. Yep. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've been playing uh, Borderlands 3, which is the opposite of the contemplative <laughs> Kentucky Route Zero. Um, and I realized, I was thinking about it today, I'm just addicted to the gameplay loop of uh, shoot and loot. And because the, <laughs> the game play really isn't that sophisticated it really is just shooting goons and then seeing what loot they drop um but i've i've, I've been loving the hell out of it and I, I realize that i'm being manipulated in that way that it's just like the very very basic gameplay loop but uh yeah I'm, I'm enjoying it while it's while it's going on um yeah but i think uh uh, I've got many more things to say about video games, to, to be honest, but I, I think we might need to cut it short because I could uh, go on forever. We have uh, a couple of minutes left in the show, but we did want to call out uh, a few things before uh, Anthony Caruso wins by. Um, just quickly, I did come across a nice uh, local app by uh, Pat Allen, um, who's been uh, uh, involved in a lot of stuff in Melbourne of late. Um, Support Act uh, is one way that you can connect up your streaming services. Um, uh, great for getting music out there for musicians, but they don't make a great deal out of royalties. So if you go check out um, supportact.app, um, it gives you a nudge uh, and an email from time to time when you're listening to um, particular musicians. So a great way to get encouraged to actually um, pull out the folding and stuff and support local music. So nice work, Pat Allen. Um, Digital Rights Watch has a next uh, their next free online event. Uh, it's on July 30th at 1 p.m. Um, it's for facial recognition. Um, so Digital Rights Watch, of course, does really good work uh, making sure that we're all looked after. So um, if you're interested in learning more about uh, your digital rights with facing uh, uh, facial recognition, um, be sure to check that out. Um, and just to finish up, the, uh, the Australian Council for the Arts uh, is working with an organisation called Paddle on a two-day uh, creative technology hackathon happening on Wednesday, August 19th and Thursday the 20th. Um, and they're looking for domestic and international students, graduates and research PhDs um, from tertiary educators across uh, Australia to apply and participate and look at the topic of how might you creatively embed technology to deliver more sustainable organisations, practices and or communities. Um, and we'll tweet out the link to that after the show. Thanks to our guest, Verity Trot. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.